Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code Asia for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. The media have been feeding us this fake news story about the death of social media. There is absolutely nothing in the data, regardless of what data points I look at. There's nothing in the data that supports the idea that social media is dying. It's the complete opposite. Social media users are growing. The time that we spend using social is increasing. There is no evidence of the death、mm. of social media. So that was a big surprise in there. I think. Uh, when you start looking at things like streaming, there's obviously some really interesting conversations there about the overall time we spend streaming TV content versus how that splits across different companies. So Netflix versus Disney Plus versus whatever else. Search behaviors, I'm sure we're going to unpack that later on, but that is another one that is evolving quite rapidly. And I think how people find what they're looking for on the internet is evolving rapidly. That's got implications for everybody. It's not just a business conversation. That's anybody that is wanting to reach and influence audiences on the internet. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I am Bernard Leong, and it is that time of the year when we review the state of digital for the year 2023. Where is social media going? How are brands thinking about generative AI? Is the NFT market dead or alive for brands? My guest here definitely needs no introduction. Simon Kemp, founder and CEO of Happios. Welcome to the show, Simon. For the sixth year since we started our conversation in 2017. Thanks for having me back. I, I kind of find it strange that you're inviting me back after our previous conversations because we nerd out way too much. But it's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. So, how has life been treating you since our last conversation in August 2022? It feels like it was longer ago than that, but yeah. So, I think since last time I spoke to you, I did a couple of reports, and that's been basically my life, Bernard. So, it, particularly for the last 88 days, I've taken one single day off, including weekends. So, basically, 87 days of constant back-to-back -back work with Christmas Day off. Looking at all the latest numbers, you know how nerdy I am. I love looking at those numbers. So. We went through fifteen thousand charts produced in this year's collection. We've got two hundred and thirty plus countries. We've got a lot to talk about. So that's my life, Bernard. I have nothing interesting to tell you other than I'm a nerd and I look at data. So we spoke for the past few years, and I'm sure you have evolved in your career. I wanted to ask this question again: What are the interesting lessons you can share with our audience on your career journey so far? On the career journey, not the data journey. I think. Life always throws you surprises, and those surprises are usually a good thing. It's funny I was speaking to somebody about this yesterday. This idea that you have a career plan, and then life suddenly comes along and changes all of the plans that you laid, and you end up in a completely different place from where you intended. But I think for the most part, that's been I've been very fortunate. I think 
I think we may have talked about this last time, Bernard, but I'm going to say it again. Embracing the things that I think I was a little bit embarrassed by has been one of the best bits of my career journey. So when I first started out, being a nerd was something that other people considered to be less cool than I would perhaps have liked to admit to myself. So I avoided it for the longest time. But then I suppose one day I woke up and realized that I really do just like looking at data and analyzing it. And it's become my life. So don't worry about what other people think about whether it's cool or not. Do what you enjoy. Do it well, and you'll turn that into a career that fewer people are chasing, which is a good thing. Mm, that's very interesting and unique. So I'm going to go straight to the point. Let's start with digital 2023. <laughs> straight into the numbers. <laughs> so I want to get to the really the crux first. Is what are the key takeaways and major surprises from the report in 2023? Yeah. So this is one of those nice occasions when the surprise and the key takeaway are the same thing. So. We realized together with GWI, who are one of the main data partners in the report series, we realized that the amount of time that people spend using the internet has gone down quite meaningfully over the past year. So the average amount of time that the typical internet user spends online each day is down 20 minutes compared with this time last year. So that's a 5% year on year drop. 20 minutes is quite a lot. I mean, it went from just below seven hours per day this time last year to six hours, just under six hours and 40 minutes this time this year. So we're still spending a lot of time, you know, we're spending more than six and a half hours online per day, average per user, which is still hefty. But that was the biggest surprise, I suppose, in the data. And obviously the biggest takeaway, there's lots of implications behind that and what it means for businesses, what it means for society, all sorts of stuff. Just to stress before we get into any all of that, though, just to reassure people tuning in today, that drop doesn't mean that the internet is becoming less important. It just means we're using it in different ways. And we'll unpack that as part of today's conversation. But before you worry, the drop doesn't mean that we have abandoned the internet. Is it because of the COVID pandemic? Because now we move into an endemic world and then people just don't watch a lot more Netflix, not looking at themselves all the time on the phone or maybe doing a TikTok video at home, talking about the food they like to eat, etc. So there's an element of that. I think it's quite interesting when you look at China in particular, China still at the time where we collected this data, China was still sort of stuck in its zero COVID policy. So many people still at home with not a lot of escape into the real world. And they were still spending a lot of time on the internet. So it's very clear that lockdowns did play an important part in elevating the amount of time that we spent online over the past three years. But it's not the only factor. And I think lockdown is, is a very specific kind of driver of activity, if you like. But other elements of COVID have come into play in different kinds of behavior. So because people spent so much time online over the past few years, I think they've come to realize that certain aspects of their online behaviors are not quite delivering them the benefits that they were hoping for. So you know, there was a lot of conversation over recent years about the mental health implications of spending too much time on certain kinds of platform, reading too much news, getting involved in rabbit holes and toxic conversations, all these kinds of things. And I think, you know, people have sort of woken up over the past year or so and realized that maybe they could be spending some of that time in a better way in offline activities. And some of it's just because we're allowed to go out and see our friends and family, but other things, it's a more proactive choice of, no, instead of doing that, I'm going to go and do these other things. So, yeah, I think, it's, like I said, it's definitely not indicative of the fact that the internet is less important. The analysis that the guys at GWI did suggest that this is about being more purposeful and considered 
when it comes to our internet activities. And I think that's a positive. I think it's a really good thing that we're being more thoughtful about how we spend our time online. Mm. You mentioned just now in the key takeaway and major surprise, you also talk about they are switching to doing other things. It may not be the same usage as before. Can you talk about what are examples of what those other things are like and where are people moving towards in terms of the channels they access in the internet? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the, within that, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, Bernard, I don't even know mm-hmm. to start. But one of the things that we noticed across a lot of the data in GWI survey, which you know, it's a very big part of the report, but it's not the only thing. We will talk about some other stuff mm-hmm. later as well. But one of the things that's interesting is that there was a lot of stuff in there that saw gentle declines. So a lot of activities that I was expecting to see increase actually didn't. So either they remained the same or they actually dropped off a little mm-hmm. bit. But despite that, overall decline in time spent on the internet we actually saw time spent using social media increase which i think will probably come as a surprise to a lot of people tuning into today's show i think the media have been feeding us this fake news story about the death of social media there is absolutely nothing in the data regardless of what data points i look at there's nothing in the data that supports the idea that social media is dying it's the complete opposite social media users are growing the time that we spend using social is increasing there is no evidence of the Mm. death of social media so that was a big surprise in there i think uh, when you start looking at things like streaming there's obviously some really interesting conversations there about the overall time we spend streaming tv content versus how that splits across different companies so netflix versus disney plus versus whatever else search behaviors i'm sure we're going to unpack that later on but that is another one that is evolving quite rapidly and i think how people find what they're looking for on the internet is evolving rapidly that's got implications for everybody it's not just a business conversation that's anybody that is wanting to reach and influence audiences on the internet that's definitely a key consideration so that'd be one of the other key things that i pull out but you've got all sorts of like very small specific things that i'm sure we'll we'll be able to pepper today's conversation with. Mm. so you like to collect digital data sources and i know because over the last 10 years since the beginning of your report i've been tracking this that mm. you've been adding more and more data sources. So I'm going yeah. to be straight to the point. What are the new data sources added to the report this year? I get to celebrate our wonderful partners. So these are the data, t- the ones that I mentioned specifically, these are the partners who actively get involved with sharing their data to us. If you are listening in today and you're a data provider, and you want to have this conversation, please do get in touch. I'm always exploring new data sets. But so I've mentioned GWI. They've been with us almost since the very beginning. Fantastic partner. This year, we've extended our relationship with Data AI. It used to be called App Annie, but we've become a lot sort of more proactive in the way that we share data, which is brilliant. I now get access to a lot more of the really in, in detail insights about the changes in the way that people are using mobile apps. Fascinating. So that impacts everything from social media through to e-commerce. So all sorts of great stuff to unpack and some really nice juicy stats that we can share today in there too. Um, since the I mean, since the last time we spoke, which was only a few months ago, we've only really added one major new partner compared to that, which is Ppro. So Ppro or an e-commerce payments facilitator they're the engine behind all sorts of payments on a huge in terms of their impact on the digital commerce world they do a great study every year on payment trends e-commerce activity and they willingly shared that data with us so we're now partnering with them as well but yeah i mean we've got 10 10 partners i'm going to have to try and remember them off the top of my head here which is really going to test my memory but so we've got gwi statista 
GSMA Intelligence, who are the sort of the world body on mobile. We've got SEMrush, who are traffic analytics, data AI, I've already mentioned. I'm assuming people know who Statista are, by the way, but just in case, they're a huge database of data. Go and explore them. PPRO for the e-commerce, Ookla for mobile speed, sorry, internet connection speeds. Sky, who are mm. a digital advertising platform, I suppose, and they provide us some excellent insights into advertising spend across social media at search. Localwise, who are a social media kind of analysis and listening platform, and then similar web also, similar to SEMrush, they are doing the traffic analytics. That was my 10. I did it. Mm. Well done. And what is the one <laughs> thing you know now about social media or anything digital that many people do not from the digital 2023 report? Yeah, I think the easiest thing to start with there would be the belief that social media is dying. And like I said earlier, there's just no evidence of that. So the fact that we're spending more time on social, I confess that did come as a surprise. I was expecting, considering the way that overall internet time had gone down, I was expecting to see that drop. But it having gone up, I was surprised. So considering that I spend my life looking at this data, if I was surprised, I'm sure there's a few other people that would be surprised by that too. But you're bound to get asked this question by listeners and viewers. So it's the question of, great, so we're spending more time on social media, but where are we spending it? So which platforms and all that kind of stuff? So I'll prepare myself for that question when you're ready to ask it. So I'm going to ask this question first before I get to that question, right? Are there any inflection points relating to growth on web, mobile, and social users across the world? Because there, there seems to be increase in social media usage, which yep. is interesting because the mainstream media has been giving out this fart about social media is dying and then, you know, CC matters, stock is tanking and then suddenly it goes back up after months. Like Gilbert yeah. talk about resilience and then you see everybody yeah. is talking about Elon's Twitter crashing, but actually it's still alive and kicking. So Very much. where are we? Where are we exactly? Well, so the good news is all of this data is in the report. So you can go and unpack this as a viewer today as well. There's mm. low, 460 plus slides in the main report and then 15,000 slides across the rest of the suite. So plenty of insights in there. I think stories like Twitter is dying. I'm not seeing that. So it's interesting because Twitter as a company has stopped publishing figures for investors, which is primarily where we used to get those MDAU, monetizable daily active user figures for the platform, which is typically what we would reference in the media. As soon as Elon bought Twitter, those stopped. They don't publish them anymore. So all we have are the advertising reach figures that we include in our reports. Those showed really strong growth. I mean, we're talking very strong double-digit year-on-year growth in Twitter's ad reach. Now, admittedly, any hater out there is going to come in and tell me that this is partly inflated by bot traffic and whatever else. I'm not going to dispute what people believe on that one because I don't have proof either way. And I do confess, I look at some of these numbers and I'm like, goodness, that is incredible growth. But if you go in and you look at what's actually happening on the Twitter platform and you look at the conversations that are taking place, regardless of the amazing advances that we've seen in AI conversations through things like ChatGPT, those conversations are still primarily being driven by humans. And there is a depth of conversation there. Now, it's not always friendly. There's a lot of hostility and toxicity on Twitter. Weirdly, that's part of its appeal. I think Twitter is a place where you can go and find differences of opinion. And personally, much as... I get scared by a lot of what I see. I also learn a lot more than I do in any other platform on Twitter. So don't let the media mislead you. Twitter is not dying. Twitter may be evolving. Some of the people that used to love it may love it less now, may have stopped using it completely, but it's attracted a different group of people. Whether those are people that you would want to spend time with in your real life, 
I'll leave that to you to decide. But there is no doubting or debating that Twitter is an incredibly valuable part of the mix. And the good news is it's not mandatory. You don't have to use it and you can use other things as well. So let's not get knocked out. Meta, yeah, again, another one of those stories that the media has been misleading us around for a long time. Facebook is not dying. It's complete nonsense. There are certainly challenges. There's no denying that. And Mark Zuckerberg himself acknowledges in investor conversations, in media interviews, that there are things that they need to do differently in order to ensure that Meta is well-placed for the future. They've got a lot of bits and pieces that they need to fix to make the experience as good as it could be for the user. That's words that they've said themselves. But this idea that Facebook is dying is just crap, Bernard. There's just nothing in the data that says that. Having said that, so monthly active users are still growing. We had that little blip back in the October update. Was it October, July update? I can't remember which one it was where it went down. Since then, it's more than doubled back again. So yeah, that was a one-off and I don't expect to see any rapid declines in Facebook in the near future. To be honest, I would expect to see it continue to grow less quickly than it has done previously, but I would be surprised if it suddenly falls off a cliff because it is an ingrained part of people's lives. And I think that's the bit that we need to take away here. This idea that suddenly 3 billion people are going to wake up one morning and decide that they want to move to TikTok instead of Facebook is just nonsense. Sure, well over a billion people are using TikTok, but those people, our data clearly shows this, GWI's research, 80-something percent of working-age TikTok users still use Facebook every month. That's a TikTok user using Facebook. 85%, I think it is, can't remember off the top of my head, but it's roughly there. They're not abandoning Facebook for TikTok. They're using both of them. And they're still using Instagram and Twitter and seven platforms on average per user per month across ages right the way around the world. So yeah, your sense I have a little bit of... um emotion around this topic, Bernard, but I do get incredibly frustrated with the way that journalists and media outlets represent this data because there's no justification for the misinformation that we're seeing other than clickbait to try and drive ad revenue, which I think is it's a shame because you don't need to resort to misrepresenting the truth in order to get readers. Mm. So one interesting change I've seen is that Mark Zuckerberg has now appointed Elon Musk as his chief product officer. And he has dumped Evan Spiegel because now he's taking features from Twitter, like the new forty-nine. What headline have I missed here? Yeah, you know this is a very well-known secret, right? He used to pick everything from Snapchat and then etc. But the key insight I thought was interesting from your report was that the social media choices I think you alluded to earlier are not a zero-sum equation. I think the question now for me is, what does that really mean for brands, consumers? and also advertisers. You nailed it, Bernard. It's not a zero-sum game. And I think this is the bit that, again, a lot of the, especially the industry media, so marketing media and sort of things around the business media more broadly, they seem to think that it's this perpetual fight. So first of all, as I already mentioned, that the amount of time that people spend on social media is increased. Therefore, the pie overall is bigger. And so sure enough, there are increasing battles for share of that pie, but nonetheless, the pie is bigger. Therefore, there's more to go around. I think, where do we take it? I mean, it's just one of those situations where the users go to each of these different platforms to get different benefits. And I think that's the story that isn't getting told. The the zero-sum element of it assumes that Facebook and TikTok are in direct competition. Whereas I think intuitively, if I said to you, if you put on a a sort of a, a line, if you had Facebook... TikTok, Netflix, 
is TikTok going to be closer to Facebook or to Netflix? And I think especially once you start looking at younger users, it's a, you know, TikTok is a video platform where users themselves, 80% of users almost, tell us that they go there specifically to find funny and entertaining content. And that's not really why the majority of users are going to Facebook. They're going to Facebook to have conversation with friends and family. They're using it for other things as well. You know, so it's not like this unidimensional thing. But if TikTok is an entertainment platform, it's not competing with the same mindset and emotional benefits that Facebook is. Now, sure enough, it might start competing with Snapchat and Instagram. And along that spectrum of social versus entertainment, you're going to get all sorts of different conflicts. And some people may realize that one is a substitute for the other. But I think marketers especially need to take a massive step back from the way that they're planning these things and stop having this bucket called social media, where somehow the budget gets divided amongst all these things that we've arbitrarily given the name of social media when they occupy very different places in our lives. So yeah, I think, you know, like I said, seven platforms on average per user per month, people are going there for very different reasons. And we've got really great insights into what those motivations are per platform within the report. So don't allocate your budget just because it's got the same sort of bucket name, you know, really do your due diligence and look at what your audience is using these platforms for. And then you're much more likely to actually find a way of reaching and resonating with that audience. Mm. But then what about like brands when they pick these advertisers to help them to allocate that budget, right? Because mm. they used to have this really strange mindset when I used to meet people from WP, Group M or whichever, you know, people who think that they're truly smart, but they're morons. What does it mean for brands? Yeah. As in, how do they allocate? Like, I mean, if I am selling a car or selling something on the internet, I probably would target Facebook, target a little bit here, target a little bit there. But of course, obviously, for those morons that I talked about, they will try to throw 95% of the budget into somewhere. I call it maybe TV or something else, or maybe Super Bowl ad. But how does the brands rationalize that? So to be fair, I'm going to categorize them all. <laughs> more. A, lot of friend, a lot of friends at these agencies. No, so I think just, to be in the advertising industry, that's the best part for me. Just a little bit of context here. I mean, I think when you look at how agencies make the decisions as to where they put that budget on behalf of their clients, a lot of the time they're told this months in advance. So if you look at, if you take the largest FMCG companies, you know, big packaged portfolio brand companies, they're making decisions 18, 24 months in advance as to where this budget's going. And they've mandated before they even know what the campaigns are, that X percentage of their total budget is going to go on Facebook. And that's what they tell the agencies. The agencies have had to pitch for this. They've reduced the amount of commission or whatever earnings that they make on this to the bare minimum so they win the work. They simply don't have the resources to argue with it. So an awful lot of the time, bad decisions are the result of other bad decisions and they just compound themselves <laughs> and they just end up in this shit show of nonsense so yeah i think it's the blind leading the blind into dark rooms it's just a bit it's unfortunate for the most part but you're right the net result is that there's an awful lot of poor decision making going on and there's not enough pushback on what should be being done with budgets to get the best out of them part of that's a lack of time and resource and part of it is just laziness i'll be honest Mm. so yeah how do we do this better i think one of the most important bits is understanding that People are going to social media for their own particular reasons as users. And we've got to serve value in that context. We can't just interrupt people with our agenda and hope that somehow it's going to be relevant to them. It's just 
It's ridiculous. We used to have the luxury in broadcast media, especially in television, where people would sit down at prime time for a couple of hours after dinner and they would watch their soap opera and they would watch a bit of this and a bit of that. And we as advertisers would have the luxury of interrupting them for 30 seconds every 15 minutes or so multiple times. And people would, you know, they would either go and make a cup of tea, go to the toilet, or they'd just sit there passively waiting for the ads to finish, but they would have at least consumed some of them. That just doesn't happen anymore in the sense that on digital, unless, even on YouTube, we'll come back to the YouTube bit in a minute, but, you know, you've got the unskippable ads and people are just like throwing phones across the room because they're getting furious about the unskippableness of it. But especially when you're looking at platforms like TikTok or Snapchat or whatever else, you're you're scrolling. If you have not grabbed the attention and the hearts and minds of your audience within the first fraction of a second, your advertising's lost. You may still record an impression because your ad has been on screen for a certain percentage for a second or more, but that is not meaningful. And I think it's that bit. We've got to get a lot better as marketers, as businesses of understanding what motivations people have for going to these platforms, what kinds of value they're looking for. We'll unpack that bit a little bit more as well, Bernard. But what's the value they're looking for and how we how can we deliver that? For the most part, brands are able to deliver value that is separate to the products that they make. So it doesn't just have to be that you talk about a product and that's the only way you can achieve marketing success. So I think just getting out of that broadcast mindset, which still for some weird reason dominates, even though Digital now accounts for the greatest share of spend. Like, we need to update ourselves, Bernard. So one key insight I saw was that the social media CPMS had experienced a major drop. What yeah. happened there? And are there causes for worry for the advertising market? Because I understand from your report was that it only happened for Q4 2022. So CPM is cool. Per mille, French for cost per thousand impressions. I'm not quite sure why the French term became the standard around the world. But there we go, CPM, cost per thousand impressions. So this is data from Sky that I mentioned, Sky.io, who is the partner that shares this fantastic data with us. So they analyze $7 billion worth of global ad spend. So this is a fairly hefty representative sample here. Tons of brands, lots of different categories, all that kind of great stuff. Mm. Their analysis shows that, yeah, the CPMs from Q4 2021 to Q4 2022, so the holiday season that's just ended, compared to the previous year, the average price to deliver a thousand impressions on social media has gone down. That sounds like a little bit of a scary thing. It sounds like there's some kind of collapse. In actual fact, that isn't quite the case. I mean, there's certainly plenty to worry about, but that price is not indicative of the worries that a lot of people are reading into it because that price has gone down partly because the number of total impressions has gone up quite considerably. So if you can imagine if impressions have gone up faster than actual spend has gone up, then the average price per impression has to go down. Simple maths. And that's what's happening here. So a lot of this is just averaging out. When you look at the increase in the number of impressions being served on social media, that's where the conversation gets really interesting because we've got a couple of things here. Brands are allocating a greater share of their total budgets to social media advertising overall. And then at the same time, budgets going up means that we're spending then even more than that on social media ads. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Are, should we be worried about the state of global advertising? I think there is plenty to be nervous about, but that's part of the broader macroeconomics. So this is not an advertising specific issue. Advertising tends to suffer quickly when we have a macroeconomic crunch. But at the same time, I think a lot of marketers know that investing in advertising during recessions and similar can have exponentially good benefits. There's all sorts of great case studies to prove this. So 
yeah, I wouldn't pre- I wouldn't pretend that everybody's going to be able to suddenly throw all of their budgets into advertising, but I don't think it's quite as scary as a lot of pundits have made out. Mm. So we talked about earlier that Meta, who's the owner of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, yeah. is not dying. And then recently they had a stock price surge after a stock price crash. crash. Yeah, so <laughs> significant crash. What's the barometer like for you now for Meta? Overall as a so company... I- yeah, so I'm not an investment expert. And the more that I look at my data and the more I look at the investment trends, the more I realize that is the case. So I confess, when I was going... So this is an important couple of stories to expand on here, Berta. So this may be a slightly longer answer, even than usual. But, so we analyze the ad reach data that Meta publishes. So this is the potential number of users that advertisers can reach across their different platforms on a monthly basis. We collect that data... Every quarter, we publish that. We make it all available to every reader. So if you want to dig into it, you can, and you can look at these trends as well. What's really interesting is that over the past year, we've seen quite meaningful declines in the number of users that people can uh, that advertisers can reach on each of Meta's platforms. So this is Facebook, but also Instagram and Messenger as well. So Facebook saw a 6% year-on-year decline, Instagram 11% year-on-year decline. That's quite meaningful. And an 11% drop in potential ad reach is quite sizable. I hasten to add, that's ad reach. When you look at the monthly active users, those figures are actually still going up. Now, I know a lot of people are like, "What? how is that even possible? How can you have ad reach going down, but monthly active users going up? There's a variety of different reasons for this. I don't know whether one of them is more important than the other, but things like, very important to look at things like US sanctions. So in particularly in the case of Instagram, the sanctions against Russia were a big part of the drop year on year. No question about that. It's not the only thing, having said that, because we see these drops across pretty much every country, but at a global level, that did have an important impact. You've then got changes in behavior. So off the record, I have a conversation with some guys at Meta recently who are suggesting that part of that drop is due to changes in user behaviors where people are spending more time within the Reels environments. And because Meta hasn't quite cracked how to monetize Reels in the same way that it has the main feed, ironically, that means that fewer people are actually seeing ads. It's kind of interesting because they've been pushed into that scenario by the investors saying, you've got to follow TikTok, you've got to get people into Reels. And ironically, it's costing the investor more money compared to the situation that was there before. It's weird. I mean, investors are a very odd bunch because they want everything to look the same rather than realizing that diversity is actually a good thing and delivers better returns. Like I said, I'm not an investment professional, so I wouldn't profess to understand that mentality, but I think it's broken. You're going to ask a question. Sorry. No, but I never understand this, right? TikTok's actual competitor is YouTube. It's not Facebook. It's not Instagram. I think a lot of the... A lot of the investors or the geniuses, they call it with two quotation marks in Wall Street, are thinking, are comparing apples to oranges. Yeah. That is a part that I never get it. I'd agree with that. that. It's as if that they always thinking about the wrong wall between TikTok and Meta. If I were to be really being intellectually honest, I would look at YouTube versus TikTok. Yeah. Even then, though, I'm not convinced that the two of them are directly, I mean, obviously, they're the most similar, but YouTube is particularly good at longer form content. Correct. And the irony is that they're chasing shorts because they want to have a, an argument against it. But it's like... But the, the recommendation algorithm works very differently. It does. And yes. I have to say that the shorts experience from an advertising perspective is very different to the one that I would have anticipated based on the traditional YouTube experience. So, yeah, I mean, if I was advising investors 
on which of these companies, I think an awful lot of them fundamentally misunderstand the user motivations and behaviors that go into that. I mean, it drives me crazy. I speak to people that make literally millions of dollars giving investment advice to big companies. You know, they work for these big banks and you speak to them. They understand technicalities about the company, but they fundamentally misunderstand the end user. They may understand customers, but not the people that are consuming the content. And it's annoying because ultimately the user is what drives everything. So they've got to get better at that. And this is interesting to you because I have started doing video. And because I've started using shots and TikTok, I realized what I was really measuring. Because these shots are actually helping me to drive traffic into the main video. But I think people are not thinking about the interest engine part of TikTok which is something that totally either not reported in the press or they're not yeah. thinking about it clearly. Absolutely. And I think you know, the fact that you mentioned traffic, there's an interesting one. So when you look at YouTube and the role that it plays within a portfolio, especially within a marketer's portfolio, it's in a different place, not because the content formats are different or whatever else, but because the reasons I'm going to YouTube are very, you know, even the way that I consume YouTube, just as an example, right? I'm going to get my phone out. This is YouTube. This is TikTok. Sure enough, shorts is this, but this is the YouTube experience. That that very basic difference in device orientation means that I'm different. I may be sitting back. I may be leaning for my emotional state is different. And like you said, I think traffic that you're going to get driven from TikTok is incredibly different to the kind of traffic you can expect to be driven from YouTube. Even though the content may be identical, the ways that these platforms work and the way that people interact with the content on there means that you're going to get totally different results. So I think these are things that marketers and investors both need to spend a lot more time getting their heads around. And in particular, they need to be using these platforms as a user, not pretending that they've got this deep knowledge because they've read some reports. Let's talk a little bit about the algorithms. I think the way how YouTube works is that it really takes whatever you tag on. That means the categories very seriously and pigeonhole your interest graph according that way. Whereas TikTok has a very different discovery engine where whatever video you see, I will basically push you towards more and more transacting to the same videos. It's like the dog video story that I will talk about how my wife got addicted into social media, especially as an anti-social media person. It's like (laughs) they just keep feeding her the cutest dog videos that you can ever get. Yeah, and then my I think life is that, exactly the same. Exactly, right? So there's that part there, I think the discovery mode is so different that yeah. even comparing YouTube and TikTok is a totally different story. And I'm not going to get into reels because I have also start out the algorithm and it doesn't work very well either. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, the reels one is a very different experience. But when you look at, to, to build on your point there about the algorithms, I think when you look at TikTok's algorithm, it's very clear that it is taking a greater, you know, it's putting a greater weight on the signals of people like you. Whereas exactly like you said on YouTube, it's much more videos that have a similar categorization. So the video is a little bit more, which is kind of interesting because on the TikTok one, your social graph is, it's much less important than it would be on an Instagram, for example. It's people like you, regardless of whether you know them, but people that exhibit similar kinds of behaviors, like how quickly do you scroll and all these amazingly nuanced signals that they can pick up. And that's feeding into the, I pretend like I know the algorithm inside out. I don't, this is all the things that I've heard from other people who are much more expert than me. But that social, the move from Meta's social graph into the YouTube sort of content graph and now into 
the engagement graph, I don't know what we would even call it in TikTok, but they work in different ways. And I think you're absolutely right. You could take exactly the same set of videos and each of these platforms would treat them remarkably different. And as a result, as a user, you would get a different experience. So, yeah, I think, you know, that in itself is worthy of millions of dollars worth of research and investment from the marketing community. Because if you don't understand how that works, you're not going to be making the optimum planning choices. So anecdotally, I actually managed to speak to one of these people who runs these, one of the three platforms, and I actually gave them the explanation of the algorithm and all my tests for analyzation. And they told me, bingo, you nailed it. <laughs> Sitting, right, you're going to produce a white paper on this and sell us no, that. No, 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 I'm not going to sell the answer, but I want to get to Twitter. How about Twitter? I mean, Twitter. That it is growing after Elon's takeover with a kitchen sink, of course. I mean, what are your hypotheses on Twitter? Actually, for me, it's pretty simple. This is not the right time to make the judgment or grading for Twitter. You probably have to wait to two, three years. But the one thing I like about it is finally the CEO uses the product every day. Oh, uh, and he's uh, like a uh, number one beta tester. To, to be honest, I don't think he does anything else except tweet anymore. It's quite remarkable. I can't escape him. He's also managed to crack this idea that everybody on Twitter needs to see his tweets. So you can't, like, every time I open the app, regardless, I've got multiple accounts, obviously, as you would imagine. Every account I open, he's always the top tweet. It's really interesting. Like, they've clearly tweaked their algorithm a little bit. So I'm seeing a lot of more older content. I think that's one of the interesting things is that Twitter's half-life has grown somewhat, even if it's still really quite intensely painful. And you know, com- you compare it to something like Pinterest, and apparently it's like you're looking at maybe a couple of months of a half life on a post on Pinterest, whereas on Twitter you're talking hours. But yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating. I confess, I go through waves of Twitter, and I'm a very singular audience of one, so I'm not representative. But my own personal experience, you know, when there was all the hype around Elon taking over and how it had turned into a cesspool and all this kind of stuff. Just because of the work I do, I had to go in and have a look to see whether this was the case so that I can report accurately to my clients, to my audience, as to whether or not the media is misleading us again. In this case, not as much misleading going on. It is a cesspool. But at the same time, there is incredible value to be taken from a lot of those cessing conversations. So like I said earlier, the global ad reach on Twitter has gone up quite significantly. That I would imagine is a combination of an increase in the number of users. Um, By users, by the way, that doesn't mean unique human individuals. A lot of that is going to be businesses, non-human accounts, like maybe musicians, bands, pets, you name it. So the fact that there may be more accounts than people in certain countries, which is actually the, the case in Singapore. We have more accounts on Twitter in Singapore than we do people that are eligible to use the platform, according mm. to the company's own data. But, you know, weirdness aside, I think when you look at the conversations and I think user numbers are interesting, ad revenue is interesting if you're a public listed company, but Twitter's not anymore. So let's park that conversation. Where do we start identifying the real value of Twitter now? Social listening. So the old thing that we used to do a decade ago that everybody was really excited about and then for whatever reason decided they were going to get out of their heads and forget about this kind of stuff is still magical and to this as you get into this sort of new world of twitter it becomes even more valuable than it's always been i don't quite know why people lost their way with social listening because it is still one of the best things that we can do to learn about our audiences and sure enough people on twitter are not representative of the global masses they are a very specific kind of subset but you can still learn an awful lot of incredibly valuable stuff so Yeah, again, I would very much encourage you not to buy into the clickbait headlines. Twitter is not dying at the moment. It's definitely going through some growing pains, and I suspect we'll see a lot of fallout 
we will lose a certain group of users. We'll see a lot more challenges to come before I think Elon gets this right. And finances are probably at the top of that list. He himself just yesterday was saying that he somehow managed to spend $44 billion on the world's most unprofitable nonprofit. So <laughs> this is the greatly entertaining insight into his current state of mind about his purchase. But I don't think he regrets it at this point. It is, it, he has also purchased one of the most vibrant conversations in the world. You, you know, speaking of conversations, I find that if I were to use Twitter just specifically for finance, crypto-related tweets, yeah. I still get the best conversations. Oh, totally. I, I still think that there's a value of those conversations. I know about the cesspool situation, but thankfully, because I'm not interested in those things, and every other day, I would just get a pretty nice Disney Plus video telling me, you know, this is the latest <laughs> show that I'm going to be, despite, I'm, you know, I'm a Disney Plus fan. I think one question I want to talk about here is, given after Elon's takeover and then everybody start declaring, you know, I'm leaving Twitter, you know, here's my account. And so now we talk about the Web3 social networks. Yeah. So there is a problem. I, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but Web3 protocols does not allow network effects to work because yeah. of the decentralization. And I think it's like this, I did an investor class for a group of tech executives in the Web2 world. And I explained it, the way you need to think about investing into Web3 is that network effects doesn't exist. Adding one more node to the Ethereum protocol means that the value of the network dilutes. Yeah. And I think- It's a challenge. Correct. So when it comes to- Web3 networks, whether it's Sparkcaster or Mastodon trying to challenge Twitter, I think there is an inherent problem. But I may be the minority thinking about it, but I wanted to get a much more, a better expert to explain to me, am I on the right track or am I going crazy? Are you on the right track? So the data does tell us that Mastodon hasn't exploded in the way that perhaps a lot of people predicted in the days around Elon's purchase of Twitter. And you're right, that's a network effect story, 100%. People go to Twitter because the conversation is mixed up and it's easier to find and participate, dip in and dip out. Mastodon's a little bit more complicated. I mean, in my mind, Mastodon's, weirdly, it tends to stray a little bit more into Discord world rather than Twitter world. And so from that perspective, it has its own unique value. And I'm definitely not saying Mastodon's not worthy of exploration, but it doesn't have the scale and momentum that I think a lot of people predicted it would do three, four months ago. Mastodon's been around for a while. I think it may break through and find its way, if you like, but Twitter's challenges were not the catalyst I think many people predicted. But having said that, you know, I just referred to Discord there. And I think when you look at what's happening in the world of those conversational communities, whether it's Twitter, where it's less of a community and more just a bunch of really weird water cooler conversations, to Discord, where it really is active conversations. But then you've got weirdly these things like you, you go in there for your Dali and your mid journey and all that. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. I'm going to a Discord channel, but it, okay. What? So you've got suddenly you've got these different kinds of users going in there and doing these things. Then you've got Telegram channels, which have just exploded over the last couple of years. I mean, huge growth in the use of Telegram around the world. Again, partly driven by specific communities like your crypto and all that kind of stuff. So very passion-driven conversations is what's driving the use of platforms that facilitate communities. And I think there's a lot to be learned there, especially in the investment community, that they're chasing after these mass sort of generic platforms. And yet where we see the greatest enthusiasm and the greatest depth of growth 
a lot of it is coming out of the places that are not part of that conversation that the media are having. I mean, you don't hear about Telegram being talked about as a passionate community in the media. If it gets mentioned, it's possibly because it's secure encrypted, which is another slight misconception of how it works, but let's ignore that for now. I think, it, sorry, go on, I'll, I'll let you mm. before I go. Mm. What about that. WhatsApp communities? Because that is the new yeah. thing that came around. And I hazard a very good guess that if WhatsApp communities work, it would be another potential challenger to Telegram Discord as well. So I haven't got any numbers on it, which is really annoying. I mean, it's too new for that at this stage. And Meta I think they only launched it recently. Yeah, correct. Well. It was just a few weeks ago. And, and Meta tend to be incredibly cagey about their numbers to do with WhatsApp. So I'm still not getting any updates from them on the number of people that use WhatsApp. Excuse me. So you know, the figure that we have, the 2 billion monthly active users, that's been the same for, what, two, three years now? We need an update, folks. But when you look at things like WhatsApp communities, I think w when you look at countries like India, for example, Brazil, Indonesia, places where WhatsApp is really the sort of the, the go-to first thing that you do when you open your phone kind of thing. It's very clear that it could gain momentum in there. But the question is, is that why people used it in the first place? Trying to shift behavior from what people started using it for into a different place. I think Reels is a really good example of this. It's like, I like it, but I'm not totally sure it's why I'm opening Facebook. You know, it's like, well, I came here to chat with my friends. So I'm watching it with interest. I, I confess I have a bit of skepticism. Not because I don't think it's a good product, but because I think user behaviors are incredibly fickle and predicting whether somebody's going to move from a one-to-one -one conversation, which is the majority of WhatsApp activity at the moment, in small groups at best. But trying to move people into these much bigger comments, especially when you get into the size of, you know, the huge size of some of these Telegram channels, it just feels a little bit like that's quite a big shift in mental state for a whatsapp user so be interested Bernard. let's talk about that in the next chat mm. you've got numbers okay so i'm going to switch gears because we still have two big areas to cover so i'm going to start Wait. off with the last year's crypto crash with the fdx collapse being the most significant event yeah uh, how has the cryptocurrency market with respect to the non-fungible tokens or aka nfts and cryptocurrencies yeah. So ownership of crypto dropped between July and October, which is the latest set of data we've got. And that was just before the whole sort of scandals around FTX and all that kind of stuff. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that drop again. I mean, we're not talking about a scary drop here. It was a relatively modest drop. And I think a lot of that was to do with the crypto winter rather than anything else. I mean, a lot of people lost an awful lot of money last year with that 75, 80% decline in the value of Bitcoin and various other currencies out there. It's not surprising that people pulled their money out. But at the same time, you know, I think in many cases, the knowledge or the belief of what crypto represents, it remains. But I think, you know, as an investment speculation, which is unfortunately still really all that these coins are, they were supposed to be this new form of transaction. But where can I spend my crypto on the high street? It's not happening because they're too volatile. It's just too much of a gamble for anyone. I mean, we saw a couple of big companies accepting these things and then they stopped. So there's a reason for that. I still believe, and I'm really confident that the underlying technologies of both crypto and NFTs are here to stay. There's little doubt there, especially when it comes to NFTs. The future of contracts will be some form of 
blockchain based thing just like the nfts run on but this idea of buying all these pixelated apes and all that kind of stuff it was very clear at the time that it was a bubble that was just waiting to burst any wise person at the time was saying that I mean, we much as it's not my it's not my role when we produce our reports to say whether or not people are being slightly misguided in what they do with their own money but our advice to our clients was do not get involved in creating these things unless there is a very clear monetary benefit for you in doing so because it's a bubble there's better ways that you can invest your money as a marketer around these worlds now if you are listening to today's show and you're a big believer in these things don't take this as a criticism if you feel you've got value out of your board ape or whatever else it may be then that's great you've got values in the heart and the eye and the pocket of the beholder so don't let my judgments Mis mislead you there but at the same time i think we need to be a little bit more wary of these things because we've seen icos come and go what five six years ago we've seen crypto not necessarily come and go but definitely isn't what it was a couple of years back nfts are the same there's an awful lot of people there that are willing to take advantage of excitement and unfortunately there's a lot of people that are not quite as careful with their money as perhaps they should be so I'm wary about all of these kinds of things. I think where there's an, a digital investment of this nature involved, I would certainly advise caution. I was quite surprised actually by the amount of developer activity in Web3 creating, growing in the past few months. I think that there is something to be said there, but I think the model has also changed as well. I think somehow the NFT and gaming space are now pivoting towards a Web 2.5 model, taking that means they run everything looks as if it's a web two world, but underlying running the digital collectibles and which is a new yeah. term that people use for NFTs and a lot of the, the way of transactions running through the blockchain, but they never say that it is the most visible. But I think because you come from a different point of view, right? Would be yeah. interested to hear what's the feeling on the ground thinking about say web three gaming or NFTs specifically as a digital collectibles. In fact, recently there's a very big battle that has now taken royalties off the table from yeah. all the NFT marketplace. It was quite an interesting situation in between OpenSea and Blur, but I think this is interesting in terms of the thinking around it. Yeah, so the gaming world is probably the exception to the conversation I just had with you about NFTs. I think it's very clear that in a lot of these environments, these worlds, whatever you want to call them, NFTs play a valuable role. I think treating them as collectibles is probably a dangerous way of doing things. I mean, if you play these games regularly and you're buying these things because they allow you to play the game better or whatever else, then that, in my mind, that's a good investment. It's no different to these in-game purchases that we did on mobile 10 years ago right so yeah i mean i think that the fact that it's on the blockchain and you can buy and sell it is definitely that's value creation in my mind it's allowing you to do something that you enjoy doing as opposed to buying an nft which in most cases was just a speculative thing where you own this thing I mean, it, it was just a contract that you had and you gave the contract to somebody else whereas in games a lot of the time these nfts have utility that's the magical difference so yeah i mean gaming in my mind is really interesting whether we're looking at the future of the metaverse and all these other great sort of hype bubbles that we keep hearing about you know when you look at things like fortnite and minecraft and roblox and all that kind of stuff it's very clear that they're they've got big active communities that continue to come back day after day in the case of some of these games we're looking at a quarter of a billion monthly active players that's chunky you know that's definitely the sort of thing you want to be aspiring to if you're creating these kinds of opportunities and propositions so within that i think 
it's very clear the role that the NFT plays because you can't, you know, it reduces some of the scams, I suppose. It creates new ones, but it reduces some of the ones we had previously. But it does improve that utility. So yeah, I think, you know, especially in, there's, I think a lot of the stuff that we'll see transitioning through into the mainstream digital world in the next five to 10 years is going to come out of a lot of the experiences we're seeing in gaming now. So if you're the kind of person that likes to predict trends, going in and looking at what's happening in those Web3 gaming environments is definitely worth, it's definitely worth spending some time analyzing that. Mm. So I want to get into something really different, which is TV streaming. Mm. So I think just now that the data point about the usage of the internet declined by 20 minutes, you know, 20 minutes is actually a docu-series on Netflix. Yeah. An episode, right? What so episode? I, given that we are now living in a pandemic world and even China has reversed on their COVID zero policy and started mm. opening up. What are the implications in terms of thinking about things like streaming video for consumers or other behavioral changes that are dominant during the pandemic period? Yeah, so I'm scanning through my charts as we talk here because I wanted to bring up some of the Mm. insights into this. The idea that people are spending less time watching streaming TV is a little bit misleading. I mean, it's true in the sense, not, not, it's not true. It's not that they're spending less time. If you compare the trends that we saw during the height of lockdown, you would have predicted that streaming would have accounted for probably this much now, and it hasn't realized that potential. That isn't to say that streaming is less valuable in our lives, and it's not to say that we've abandoned it and moved on to something else. Two things to think about here. One of them is we're going out more, and ironically, still a certain degree of people having escaped lockdown. I mean, I know that for certainly people in Western markets, it feels like COVID's still with us, but lockdown was a long time ago when we've embraced everyday life and blah, and we've moved on. But in many parts of the world, it's still the sort of, you know, in, in Singapore, for example, where I live, we only just got out of mandates for masks on public transport last week. That's how recently this has happened. So, you know, from that perspective, it's kind of interesting that the world is in different places and people are therefore reacting in different ways. Streaming is also becoming a little bit more of a battle in terms of that one is a little bit more of a zero-sum game. We have a certain amount of time that we spend consuming that kind of content and it fits in certain points in our lives and you've got tiktok taking some of that lunch you've got reels and shorts and various other pretenders coming in and taking that time you've then got disney plus you've got netflix you've got all of the different right i was gonna the paramount plus whatever it's got this whatever it's called this week they keep changing the name you've got a growing number of platforms competing for both spend but also time you've then got the arrival of these ad supported tiers which is going to change the game again and then another thing that isn't getting talked about a lot in the media but is definitely worthy of conversation is partly the illegal streaming side of things so you know people being able to either hack into somebody else's account or whatever else but also just that the free to watch non TV style stuff. So anime is massive around the world. And that is a conversation that's just not bubbling up into the mainstream media. But when you look at web traffic, when you look at habits, especially across Africa, parts of Southeast Asia, places that you might want to term more developing markets, where perhaps the idea of spending money on a streaming subscription each month is simply not an option. The amount of people that are going to these platforms to watch animated content but also to read manga and that kind of stuff it's huge so i think that it's a very difficult conversation to have an overall level because it's so multi-dimensional and also the data doesn't quite tell the story with enough nuance that allows you to get the big picture so at the moment we're sort of looking at a piece of paper 
side on. You know, the mm. information's on those two sides of the paper, but we're just seeing it like this. We need to change the angle. Mm. I was about to come to that question about the advertising tiers inside Netflix, Disney Plus, and other streaming platforms which are planning to roll out. What does that mean for the consumer and also for these businesses which are now implementing into these ad-supported streaming platforms? So for the viewer, you've got choice. I think you know you can elect to be shown ads and pay less money, or you can elect to pay more money and not see ads. And it's absolutely brilliant that they're making this a choice. I struggle, to be honest, to predict which direction it's going to go in. I, I, <laughs> Working in advertising, it's ironic that I'm the one that's quite willing to pay more money to avoid ads. But, you know, Idea. I don't think... right. Advertising people like to avoid advertising. It's very funny. But having said that, I think especially when you look at some of the big growth markets across places like Latin America, Middle East, all that kind of stuff, it's very clear that the price points... I think this is one of those ways of getting around the fact that why do you charge this much in North America, but this much in Jordan, for example? It's like, that's a really, really tough call for you know, the, the, the equality conversation when the content's the same in many occasions. So the ad tiers make life a lot easier for the companies to have those kinds of conversations on. Whether it impacts the kind of content that we see is my main concern. I mean, if you think about the late 1990s and then the early 2000s and the, just the sheer amount of crap that dominated free-to-view television with the likes of likes of celebrity reality TV and all that just, you know, it just got to the stage where you would have as much advertising content as you would actual programming. And the programming, <laughs> my favorite of this is, sorry, I know this is a little bit judgmental, but I used to love channels like Nat Geo. But then it got to the stage where you would have five minutes at the start of the hour you then have, coming up on this show, we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z, and that'd be five minutes. Then you'd have an ad break. Then they'd come back and say, coming up on this show, and you'd actually only get about three minutes of actual programming, and the rest of it was coming up, what we've already talked about here. And I was like, Argh! So I suspect we may see a little bit of a degeneration into that with the ad-supported tiers if we're not careful as an industry. As an advertiser, you want to be careful and watch that because that is a grave concern. If we get to the stage where the advertiser becomes the focus of the model rather than the quality of the content, which is what separated Netflix, you know, the quality of the content for the last 10 years has been incredible compared to what we had previously. I wouldn't say it's diluting yet, but ironically the abundance of choices made it more difficult you know once we had these great terrible things to compare against previously and now our expectations have grown so it remains to be seen where they're going to take that but i think as an advertiser you want to make sure that you don't end up back in that thing where celebrity big brother becomes the dominant force because it would just be the end of quality again sorry mm. no no offense to the producers of big brother but it's just not good tv i'm going to get to the most important topic which is ai so I are you going to now relook at search engine advertising with the recent surprise that sprang up by Microsoft and the OpenAI challenge to Google? I think the question for me is, actually, I don't think Google is that threatened, but it's just the media, mainstream media talk plus the stock market having some wobble. What would be the signs of growth or decline you will look at the monopoly that Google has enjoyed for the past 15 years? So this goes back to a point you made earlier, Bernard, which is the zero sum. I don't believe that ChatGPT is the threat to search that it's been made out to be, but that doesn't mean that it won't have a massively fundamental impact on discovery. But let's break these two things down. Search at the moment, for the most part, involves a couple of different behaviours, if you like. So one of them are fairly straightforward binary questions. What's the capital of 
this country, there's an, an answer, you get it, and on you go. Other times I'm looking for information, I search in Google, it spits out a whole bunch of different links, I go through those links and I read it, and then I form my opinion. That second one, ChatGPT, has a really important role to play in changing behaviours, but it's a really dangerous model because if for that to work, what it does is it sucks in all the information and the content from publishers and then those publishers are starved. And the problem is ChatGPT only works if it has inputs. And if it starves the hand that feeds it, everybody dies. So it is it is a really dangerous situation to be in. Right, I'm a mass, massive sort of proponent for these technologies and I think that they're really exciting. There's lots we need to fix, but... I am a big, you know, I'm a big sort of bullish believer in them. But as a publisher myself, and knowing that ChatGPT has been taking my content, because we're the only people publishing certain kinds of stats, and those stats are being referenced in there. So it's interesting. I do worry because it's going to starve them of advertising revenue. And unless they work out a model whereby the sources of information are remunerated for the work that they put in order to produce that content, a lot of the internet's going to break. But I don't believe, ironically, that's going to kill Google. If anything, Google now has a stronger role to play because Google is still the it, it, it's the signpost and the map to get you to the content on the rest of the web. And much as I do my best to have organic sort of you know spreading my reports out through social media and whatever else, no matter how hard I work at that, Google is still by far the biggest source of traffic for the websites that I run. So yeah, I think this is another one of those ones we're going to need to watch carefully. I think. The hype around chat GPT is largely because of just the, the incredible advance in the quality of the technology. Below, I confess, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is not possible. How is it doing? You know, write me a song in the style of X about topic Y, and it did it, and you're like, wow, this is really good. <laughs> After a while, the novelty of that wears off, and there's only so many things that you can ask it. And I think a lot of people are still in the, let's make it, let's break it. Or let's ask the same question a hundred times and see if it, after a while, that novelty will wear off. But there will still, you can very clearly see this fitting into your daily life, but it's not going to play the role that I think a lot of people say it's going to take over Google search. It's not because you don't need an engine like that to answer basic one, one-to-one one questions like, what's the capital of Hungary? It's kind of a user experience change, right? Because it's a yeah. user interface change from trying to search and then give you a list of options versus now trying to give you the what is considered the right answer. If you think about it a little bit, but the, the problem is that it tries to generate based on the inputs it takes. That's and right. I think that's where the business model has yet to be determined. Or because, what is that business model exactly? All right. The idea and, of paying... A subscription is just, no, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. And you're seeing if you're in the enterprise world, Microsoft has very quietly put AI chat GPT into your teams, which is actually basically what Google has been giving it to you for free to have you do calendar scheduling, optimization, yeah. and try to answer questions. I mean, if you think about it, chat GPT is a glorified version of Quora with just AI inputs. <laughs> I love it. It is absolutely that, yes. Yeah, but I think the bigger story for me besides ChatGPT is actually the real big story is generative AI because I'm yeah. starting to play with things like people now testing their podcast readings with open AI's ChatGPT, testing whether you know the AI is sentient with things. Sydney, sorry, Kevin Roos, you're just basically doing a whole questions with a chatbot. It's a chatbot, it's yeah. not a sentient AI. 
And then I think you there the, the, are also much more interesting things like, you know, you can use it to generate content with ChatGPT, but also meet journey and yeah. then serve for images. I think that's interesting because I was tapping book cover names with them. What does it really mean now is that content generation is actually going to be automated. Now, so now the big question, what are your perspectives on the likely impact of generative AI on the social apps that we are using? Because you can throw a lot of content it's almost like you can throw infinite content into the market now. Correct. So you've got a few different angles here, Bernard. I think one of them is in the short term, you're going to see an explosion of more interesting content. So the average person, when you start looking at things like Dali and Midjourney, you know, these image generating engines that produce absolutely astonishing quality content. And a lot of it, you know, you can go after photorealistic if you want, but a lot of the time the magic comes when it's a little bit like different, you know, it produces things that you would never have seen before. And, you know, from that perspective, I think you're going to see a proliferation of really unusual content for a while before we become used to the unusual and it's just part of everyday life. But over the next six to 12 months, I think that's going to play an important part in setting expectations. And the irony is you've got some marketers that will embrace it. You've then got the everyday user who is pumping the content out because they want the engagement as well. And you've got the one, the marketers that haven't embraced this that are just going to look really plain, vanilla, boring in the feed. And it's an arms race once again. So you've got that aspect of it. But I think when you look at this a little bit, you know, you take a massive step back and you look at this holistically, there's, there's a bit that I think a lot of people are missing is that it's not going to take that long. We've already got tools now that are doing the same thing that Dali and Midjourney are doing with, with static images. They're doing it with video. It's not quite the same. It's still got a lot of work before it becomes quality that chat GPT is for text. But two, three years, you're going to be able to go in and with a prompt and say, give me a 30 minute video in the style of X with a story of Y. So and I want a, a video that is in the style of a Disney animation, but is the storyline of Game of Thrones mixed with Lord of the Rings, where you've got the following characters and it will create it. I then no longer need a subscription to Netflix. I then no longer need to go through the algorithm of, of TikTok because I can just choose my own adventure. I just go and go, I want this. And all of a sudden content is created bespoke just for me based on my mood today. And off we go. I mean, you imagine a world like that where content is created just for me based on some inputs that I put in. And every night I can have something similar or different depending on what. I don't need to wait for it to be released. That is fundamentally going to change content. But it's this bit that I get really interested in is that at the moment, we are still dependent on a small number. We're talking millions of people, but we're still talking about a small number in aggregate of the world's population of content producers and then algorithm writers for what ends up on our screens at any point in time. Whereas these tools are going to democratize, that's such a sort of overused term, but genuinely, this puts the creativity, this puts the storyline and the plot in the hands of the everyday person who has an idea and just wants to say, we're going to get there with music as well. You can, I mean, even for the last few years, you've been able to do this with tools like Juke Deck, which I believe is being acquired by somebody else, but you can go in and say, I want a three minute clip and a drum and bass style using the following things where there's a crescendo here and there's a breakdown here. And it creates it. And it's maybe not, you know, peak club night worthy but for your corporate video it's absolutely going to do the job and i think when you've got music where you've got video where you've got anything that you can think of creatively these tools are going to be able to do yeah the future of content is incredibly 
different in terms of how we get it. It may look similar because that's where our imaginations have come from, but how we get hold of it and who's involved in producing it, that is going to be a really weird development over the, I mean, you know, by the end of the decade, we're going to get somewhere there, I would reckon. I'm not in the business of predicting, but fairly confident that's where we're So at. maybe the movie post-credit scenes where, you know, if it's that long list for eight to 10 minutes, will suddenly shrink down to just, just then, a few seconds. Yeah, just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that you then get into that conversation, which we're already having around a lot of these technologies of how do we acknowledge the inputs and the creators and you get into IP conversations and plagiarism and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, there are valid arguments to be made for every artist is a thief because they have been inspired by the other art that they've seen in their life. This is slightly different because there's a commercialness to it, which is very different. You've never been able to aggregate at scale in the way that these tools can. But at the same time, they're not spitting out identical they are mixing and matching and to a certain extent you know the take one source and it's plagiarism take three sources and you've been creative and it's, it's suddenly now we're in this world where it's like okay so how far do we stretch this well this is visionary by the name of steve jobs once say good artists copy great artists steal." is that right and you know there, there's plenty of i am you know all the things that i do are the product of everything that I've ever experienced. And my unique combination of experiences means that what I do is different to everybody else. And I think that's what's different is that these tools won't necessarily be different each time. They will come out to a stage where we may end up converging at exactly the same repetition each time. That's a danger of one of these things is that we lose creativity because we'll come reliant on tools that create for us. I hope that wouldn't be the case, but it's a danger that we need to be aware of. But overall, I'm bullish on this one. I think from a marketing perspective, there are many opportunities, but we need to embrace them a lot more quickly than I think marketers are. A lot of the time I see marketers being scared of this. You don't need to be scared. You just need to go and do it, try it. And if you don't like it and the results aren't good, then by all means, stop. But I'd be very surprised if you're not getting good results, especially if you're working with your agency partners to do this. But you know, more broadly in, in industry and in creativity, these are things that we need to get our heads around. Photoshop didn't break photography it made it different and i think a lot of these tools are going to do that for all sorts of creative industries so that's the mindset if we can't escape it how do we use it to our best advantage mm. so i have one last question i think Hi. we have chatted now on your annual report for the past six years and spinger milestone as well for both of us i've never asked this question before but i will do it here today what mm. does great mean for the digital report in the next decade what did great mean so there's two bits, outputs and outcomes. Outputs, I think I would like to make this a lot more automated so that you can tap into the data as a reader in a very different dynamic way. We still publish PDFs. I would like to come a lot more dynamic, but I simply don't have the resources to build it. But great will be coming, I hope. In terms of the outcomes, I think the reports have always been designed to help you make better informed decisions. And I think the ability to move beyond creating the reports to analyzing them and deliver more meaningful insight beyond the data is the outcome I'm looking for. So being able to help people translate insight into action. So that that's my ambition for this. I am having conversations with a few people about doing that already. So hopefully at some point in the next 18 months, Bernard, I will be able to tell you that we're doing something radically different. But if it's the same at the end of the decade and people are still reading it, I will still be happy. Now, you think that in 10 years time, you're probably using generative AI. Talk me this chart <laughs> and tell me this insight. <laughs> Hopefully it's choosing better colors for me. Everybody keeps arguing with my colors. So if nothing else, it will choose more shiny, bright colors for me. I still like it as of the day. Thank you. Well, thank mm. you, sir. I appreciate it. And Simon, many thanks for the conversation today. Definitely we're going to have another conversation in the second half of this year. And in closing, recommendations again. 
any recommendations which have inspired you recently? Yeah, I'm going to give you a random one today. So I have been on Twitter. I've been spending a lot of time looking at the recent photographs from the James Webb Space Telescope. I confess this is like my source of just like wonder and awe. I look at this stuff and I am inspired by the magic of the universe. So much as it's not your conventional answer to that question, just if you haven't seen these photographs of deep space and millions of galaxies, go there and just close your eyes and imagine it's amazing. You're talking to someone over here whose past life is a theoretical physicist as a trained astrophysicist <laughs> and cosmologist. Right. I'm going to slightly take a step back and feel embarrassed now, but the photo is a beautiful bird. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's very beautiful because I, go, I check it out all the time. And actually, one of my guests recently also recommended the same thing. It seems that oh, really? the, cos the cosmos is giving us purpose and meaning in life, which I'm very happy about. Okay, just how do my audience find you? You can find me on the social media, surprise. Best place to get hold of me is on LinkedIn. You'll find me as Simon Kemp, black and white photo, looking roughly like this. You'll also find me on Twitter as Eskimon. And then if you want the reports, downloading all of the data reportal. I'm sure you have the links in the notes, but datareportal.com. And definitely now you can find us on YouTube, which I'm spending a lot of time on. And definitely you will get a lot of cool shots, whether it's here or TikTok channel. But most importantly, I will request you all to sign up for our newsletter, which every month I'm going to summarize all the key highlights from all the speakers I've interviewed for the month. And definitely, nice. Simon, we are going to have a chat soon. And once again, many thanks for coming on the show and look forward to speak to you again soon. Thanks for having me back. See you soon.